0: Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is September 20th, 2021. Today, as of recording, is Canada's Federal Election Day. So, We'll have some results out of there soon enough. Today, with the big story on Wall Street and financial markets, is the Chinese real estate developer Evergrande, Simon, what is the spark notes on what is happening and what should the reaction of most long-term investors be in this scenario?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'll give everyone a breakdown of what's happening and then we can chat a little bit about what we think in terms of long term investors, what the potential impacts can be. So I'll give you the lowdown on what it is. So Evergrande is a Chinese real estate developer. It was founded in 1996 by Hui Kaiyan who's now one of the wealthiest people in China. It grew really rapidly. It was fueled by debt, but also just on the timing, that's really when China started growing economically very, very rapidly. So they really were behind those tailwinds of that Chinese economic growth, which was really unprecedented at the time because it was in the double digits every single year. And there's about... 1,300 projects across more than 280 Chinese cities going on for Evergrande. So those are a lot of projects. Right now, there's about 1.5 million people that have put deposits on homes that have not yet been started. So there's actually no activity on them. So what this means is Evergrande has been using the pre-sale to finance themselves. It currently has three, actually a bit more than $300 billion in debt and around $15 billion in cash on hand. So you can see the disconnect here. For context, Canada has a GDP of $1.7 trillion and Portugal has a GDP of less than $300 billion. So just to wrap your head around it, their debt is more than the GDP of Portugal altogether. Their total amount of debt is about 6.5% of the debt in the Chinese property sector. So what's going on this week is the debt is coming due. It's starting to come due today. It's also going to come due as well for tranches of it later this week. And There are some well-known bondholders like BlackRock, UBS, and HSBC. It has other operations in industries like wealth management products, electric vehicles, consumer goods, entertainment and sports. The downfall actually really started in August 2020 when Beijing introduced new measures to monitor and control the debt level of major property developers. The share price has since dropped close to 90% since that time. The corporate bonds that they've issues have fallen more than 30% in value real estate is close to 30 percent of the economic output in china so if they do fail this could have a major impact on the chinese economy Probably the easiest thing to compare it to would be with Lehman Brothers. You did mention that earlier today. It's kind of a Chinese Lehman Brothers. So Lehman Brothers had about $600 billion in assets, whereas Evergrande has approximately $200 billion in assets and $300 billion in debt. So it's pretty similar in total assets and liabilities. There are some Canadian, US, and European banks that have exposure to their debt. So is there a risk of financial contagion or potentially some economic ripple effect? So I did read a few things today. I listened to some experts on the subject as well. My guess would be that the Chinese government will probably intervene just learning from the Lehman Brothers experience that happened in the U.S. and the whole ripple effect that kind of started with the financial crisis meltdown. But even if they do, it could have a real economic effect in China and then have a bit of a ripple effect on the global economy. So that's the the take personally that I saw a lot of people saying. If they do a bailout, the other question is, depending how much money they pump into China for that bailout, could it cause... Even more inflation globally. So, there's a lot of macro risks involved here. It's really hard to know where it's going to go. You have no control over it, and all honestly. I'll let you give your take, Braden, and then I can kind of finish up on that and then move on to our next news that we have.
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, as most people who listen to this podcast know, I do not pay attention to daily price action. And I didn't even look and know that the market was down until 2 p.m. today to give you an idea of what kind of investor I am. And let's just cool it a little bit with some of the hot takes I've seen. People act crazy when volatility hits. And I I think the S&P finished down like 2.5% on the day we're recording this at the close. And... Let's just zoom out a little bit. And I'm here to be that permanent optimist for you. The S P five hundred is up nineteen and a half percent this year alone. So we're close to we'll call it twenty percent up in twenty twenty-one. And it's September, right? So this is very normal. Drawdowns happen. I think we've seen like thirty five percent drops in the past few years. And They always are followed by, you know, potentially mixed volatility, and then people get back to reality, which is profits are good, earnings are good, the economy's reopening, and there's a lot of real reasons to be optimistic. Now, when it comes to China and $300 billion in debt, there are companies that are exposed to that debt, and that's just the real facts in play. Now, if you look across your portfolio and you see that some of the greatest businesses on earth are selling down, you know, 5% on the day or somewhere in that mix, this is your opportunity, right? This is what we talk about so much is this is your opportunity to buy stocks when they have negative sentiment around the entire market. And it makes it so much easier to buy stocks when the entire market has negative sentiment. From my perspective, because it has potentially nothing to do with the actual holdings in your portfolio or the companies in your watch list or the ones you're adding to, because there's a negative sentiment across the whole board. So, I mean, it's like the bathtub scenario where, you know, even if the entire level of the bathtub in terms of water, is down. All the rubber duckies in the bathtub are down because the water level is down. And that makes it a lot easier to purchase stocks from my perspective. And this is the kind of opportunity we wait for, Simon. So that that's my perspective. There is 300 billion in debt that could potentially be defaulted on, and it's going to affect the Chinese, you know, macro landscape. But at the end of the day, long-term investors, I don't believe need to be too concerned about this.
1: Yeah, I think for the most part, I agree with that. I may have a little bit more of a nuanced take on it. For me, I think it will depend on the type of businesses that people own. So if you have businesses that are not too reliant on... overall economy and you have pricing power like we've talked before and you have a service or product that people can't go without regardless of the economic conditions i think you'll do pretty well i think some businesses will be more affected than others especially those who have potentially more exposure in china because there's a lot of wealth in housing in china so i think those businesses may be affected a bit more will it be more short-term Probably. That's a good assumption. And the last thing is I think inflation might be a real risk here. And it all goes back to owning businesses that have pricing power. I think that's really important. Why do I think inflation might be a big risk is because the Fed in the US, if they see that there's a potential global slowdown in the economy, I think they'll just keep pumping in money in the economy, buying back, you know, debt, and so on, just putting more liquidity in the economy. And obviously, that would eventually make prices go up. So I think that's kind of my more nuanced take, but I'm not selling any stock by any stretch of the imagination. And I'll probably add more for certain types of businesses that I own. But yeah, you know, pullbacks are normal. So you can't really, you know, it's, it's good to not panic and just look at the situation and understand what it is. And if you have a good long term approach, it'll probably just be a good buying opportunity for good businesses.
0: That's right. And you do bring up a good point, right? Is, you know, last March, and you know, when the, the scary was scary, and the government decided to print a bunch of money issue stimulus, That was, in essence, a test of what the Fed can really do. And I guess maybe potentially the bear case and the concerns for inflation was that it worked so well that they have basically no incentive to act any other way in the future, right? Is think of how well the stimulus from the Fed worked last year. I mean, it worked incredibly well. And maybe that's a concern for some people who, like yourself, who look at the macro landscape and go, there's no incentive for the feds to not do what they did in the future. And, and I can see that. Now, with the Evergrande situation is, I have, in my mind, two ways to have absolute economic disaster is one, concentration, and two, leverage you know concentration and leverage are the easiest way to create generational wealth and destroy generational wealth in a very very short time frame so that's why it's just be careful with leverage i mean not just with your investment portfolio but more so in life with personal finances is leverage is one of the easiest ways to have generational wealth creation but also generational wealth destruction and that can be concerning and we've seen it play out time and time again.
1: I know we'll agree on one other thing is that I would not invest in Chinese banks right now. (laughs) That's the one thing I wouldn't touch. So, now let's move on from these news. Let's talk about some Canadian drama that is seemingly coming slowly to a close. So, the. A
0: close is a stretch. Yeah, I a close mean, is a stretch. We can't but, really say that for sure yet.
1: But it looks like it's coming to a close. Let's just put it that way. So, Canadian Pacific and the Kansas City Southern merger. So,. News came out last week that uh, Canadian National Rail abandoned its bid to buy KSU after it was clear that it would not get approved by the Surface Transportation Board. There is a silver lining for Canadian National here. It's now entitled to a $700 million breakup fee from KSU. As a side note, Canadian National still paid Kansas City Southern $700 million to break the initial purchase agreement it had made with CP. CP turned around and said that it would cover the breakup fee that Kansas City Southern will have to pay Canadian National now. So it basically is a break-even endeavor for Canadian National Rail, which I guess is good. I'm a shareholder from that perspective. CP Rail's offer, which includes the assumption of U.S. $3.8 billion of outstanding Kansas City Southern debt, values Kansas City Southern at $300 per share. That's in U.S. dollars. Following the closing into a voting trust, common shareholders of Kansas City Southern will receive 2.88 CP Rail shares and $90 in cash for each Kansas City Southern sharehold. Preferred shareholder will also receive U.S. well 37.50 in U.S. dollars again in cash for each Kansas City Southern preferred share held. CP Rail said the deal will be accretive to its earnings in the first year. To fund the consideration of the merger, it will issue 262 million new shares. The cash portion will be funded through a combination of cash on end and debt. So the deal is not done yet. Like Brayden said when we just started, the transportation board in the U.S. has approved the voting trust, but it's still possible that it shoots down the deal or requires CP to divest some of its existing assets. If the deal gets nixed, then CP will have to sell Kansas City Southern. So that's the latest news on this whole drama thing that's happening in Canada.
0: I hope that on this podcast, we only have to report this story once more, Simon, is <laughs> the final closing of what this story has gone on for. I mean, it was so interesting at the beginning, and now it's just gotten so stale because it's just taken so long, right, Simon? Like, oh, I can't wait till this KSU murder discussion. Goes away. I don't care what the result is anymore. I <laughs> just, mean, I care. Just,
1: <laughs> well, at this point, I know what the result is for me as a shareholder of CNR. But yeah, no, I'm totally with you. It was a lot of drama. And honestly, it, I think it was pretty obvious that the U.S. would not approve that from Canadian National Rail. I'm not, not quite sure why they made that bid, to be honest. So
0: You know what? And it goes back to, I was discussing this on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, by the way, at Bredo Capital. I was discussing how, you know, with a lot of CEOs, they're incentivized to, you know, they're going to remember the CEO who made the company bigger, not the price they paid. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing for value creation, but that is what happened here. And then I've also heard the other contrary take is, you know, people who didn't want that deal to go down as shareholders because they thought the price was paid too much, Was short sighted, and that you know, these this is a generational type merger that you know might never come across the plate ever again, and it has the ability for them to actually expand their network and long term. This is great, you know, pay any price you can. So, I've heard very opposing opinions on the deal over time, and at this point, Simon, just wake me up when I know exactly what's happening, and we'll report about it one more time. All right, moving on. Let's go through a couple companies' earnings. I'm gonna start it off with Jinko Solar. Jinko Solar is the largest manufacturer of solar panel modules. They shipped 5,203 megawatts of panels in Q2, which was up 16.4%. For context, 5,203 megawatts of panels, or known as 5.2 gigawatts, could power about 99,000 homes. Based on my back of envelope math here, let's call it hundred thousand homes. My engineering degree didn't go to waste. Look at this. Now revenues were actually down six point two percent year over year. Now let's look at that. I said that their shipments of panels were up sixteen point four percent, and their revs were down six point two percent. They're reported in Chinese yen, but converted this about one point two three billion USD in top line sales for the quarter at two. Billion in market cap, Simon. This is a pretty cheap stock on any multiple you can find. The business generated 210 million in gross profits. This goes back to our discussion last week that even though there's this nice secular trend behind renewable power, it's obviously strong. The solar panel manufacturers are pretty meh, subpar businesses. They're so dependent on supply chain input costs that are, you know, seem to be extremely volatile and then their own product they sell, the panels, has become so commoditized, so competitive, and they keep having to sell modules for less and less every year on a like price per megawatt basis. Now, this is overall good for the industry. It's, you know, maybe even good for humanity that solar costs come down, but the manufacturers have been mediocre businesses at best. I'm always interested in which manufacturers and utilities will benefit from this clean energy transition. But at this point, for me, solar manufacturers are uninvestable. That could change. You know, this industry landscape could change, but I'm going to have to see some pricing power before reconsidering. I think on one of the latest recordings we did, Simon, you and I both agreed that there are lots of slam dunk home run plays And the panel manufacturers are just not the best businesses.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I've never been interested by them because it seems like it's a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. And it's just, you know, I guess increasing the, you probably know this better than I do, but how efficient they are. But again, this does not make them a very good business overall and i mean it's great for the consumer if you you want to it. yeah, install solar panels it's all great and dandy but that's something we've been seeing for years for solar panel producers it's just cutting costs and getting a lot of competition from china but across the world then yeah i mean it's just very lumpy and not very predictable and when it is predictable it's usually lower margins
0: here's an example of my own personal experience and how quickly the panel technology changes for the better of the consumer, but probably not for the better of these manufacturers. And that's why these stocks trade so cheaply. I mean, they're they're really subpar businesses overall, but I was commissioning a 75 panel project for the roof of the engineering building of the school I actually went to. So I was, I was doing this. Simon, when the project started, we were going to put up 320 watt panels. And then as we were finishing the project, the exact same manufacturer was able to sell us 380 watt panels. In the difference of 2 months, we're talking about, you know, significant increase in efficiency and reduction of price in the panels in a few months. So it gives you an idea of, of how fast it's going. All right, Simon I'm going to do another one here. Oracle, the cloud company, saw earnings per share up 11% and revenues up 4%. We're going to go back to Simon's list here, but he has a very cute dog and he's telling me right now that it might bark. So We're going to save your ears on the podcast from his cute dog barking. Now, Oracle is making some good strides forward with the new cloud segments, Now, I got to be honest, I always thought Oracle was the IBM of the cloud, but that's not really a fair comparison as Oracle has actually been a fairly consistent compounder. To my surprise, I actually had to look up an Oracle stock chart. It is not a name I follow, but I thought it performed more poorly than it actually has. So I'll give Oracle some credit. When talking about IBM or Oracle or Intel, whatever it may be, these are still unsexy tech businesses that are worth over a $100 billion. Again, I was surprised at the market caps of these three companies. Maybe I've been drinking the Kool-Aid that these things are just the incumbents and these megatech fan companies are going to eat their lunch, but they have definitely dethroned these companies as the top dogs. Now, it's important to remember with stocks, even as great as some of these companies look today like those fan companies, It is never a sure thing in terms of their moat and position in the market. For instance, in the 90s, the term on Wall Street, Simon, even though I did, I was not on Wall Street in the 90s, but the term that you get thrown around is you can't get fired for buying clients IBM. The business seemed incredible. The stock just went up and up and everyone owned it. You couldn't get in trouble owning IBM for clients because everyone owned it. It was one of those consensus winners. So I digress. But back to Oracle, with cloud computing, it is really sticky. So lucky for Oracle, they still have massive switching costs for their clients. So if you want to change your cloud or your database technology for large enterprises, good luck. A Stratosphere subscriber who is a software engineer for Amazon's AWS, Amazon Web Services, and he is an expert in the cloud businesses, so shout out to him, described Trying to switch cloud providers and running your business as trying to replace the engine of an airplane when it's flying. Now, this is a great analogy because it speaks to the stickiness of software. So Oracle, you know, they keep increasing that earnings per share number because they're like the classic, you know, buy back stock, pay dividends, flex pricing power, and grow revenues like a little bit, revenues up four percent. So if you know OpenTex, ticker OTEX on the TSX or the New York Stock Exchange, the Canadian tech acquirer out of Waterloo, Ontario, I think of Oracle as OpenTex and very similar types of businesses. They're operating these older traditional tech products, having this growing cloud services segment on the side mixed in, which is you know growing, you know, double digits, 20% even, top line. But they also have these traditional licenses businesses that are kind of like bleeding out and melting ice cubes over time. So the cloud segments will provide some of that double digits growth, but their older licensing revenues are decreasing like 5 to 10% a year. It's a mixed bag of results when you look at these types of legacy, older operators of tech. So it's something to look forward to, look out for is you got to look at these businesses by segment. Now they do benefit from sticky products. They have this overall net growth even though some of these segments are declining, they're fairly undervalued, they have great margins, they buy back stock, they pay a dividend, but this is just a look at some of the unsexy stocks of tech, you know, I didn't think that in this market anything tech was unsexy, but it exists out there and they actually cash flow a lot. So, I mean, maybe something to look at is some of these unsexy tech names, but I don't follow Oracle well enough to really say for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, and thank you for doing Two in a row while my dog was barking, but we're all clear now. I'm good to go. So yeah, I agree with you. I haven't followed much Oracle. I know it's more of a legacy business. And as a side note too, the whole thing about IBM, even Warren Buffett owned it for years, right? Dude, you couldn't get fired if you owned IBM. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people for the most part lost that much on it, but it really didn't provide much growth for tons of years. So if you compare it to the benchmark, obviously you're not doing that well. So now I'll do a little portion on just the cannabis space. I know there's a lot of people... Often interested in that, so I look back at the recent earnings from Canopy Growth. A little bit behind on that one, but it was for the quarter ending June 30th, 2021, which was Q1 for them. Revenues were up 23%, percent to million. They completed a couple of acquisitions, as Valley and Supreme Cannabis. They've come out with new vapes, actual vaporizers as well, beverages and edible products. They are focusing on single-strain genetic cannabis so i think if i understand correctly focusing on either like indica or sativa when it comes to cannabis and not kind of mixing both i'm not an expert in that but that's my understanding maybe it's time
0: we do some market research simon
1: <laughs> yeah we probably <laughs> it would be fun yeah <laughs> i'm not sure how thorough our research would be but We'll do
0: some market research and record a podcast for your guys' entertainment.
1: Yeah, exactly. A special episode won't a lot of nothing. I think <laughs>
0: it. we're going to get demonetized in like five seconds after that. Yeah,
1: exactly. Their net income was interesting. So net income of three hundred ninety-two million versus a loss of one hundred and eight million last year. But I dug into the financial statement because I was interested in seeing what happened. So that was due to an increase in. Other income, such as fair value of investments and warrants. In other words, they were all non cash items. So there were actually free cash flow negative of 185 million versus free cash flow negative of 180 last year. But keep that in mind, they had net income positive of 392 million. And free cash flow negative of one eighty five. So that goes back to what we've been talking over a long time, right? Is you have a lot of just accounting practices in the income statement where they record things that have non cash impact, and that's why we like to look at free cash flow because you can see here there's a difference of over five hundred million dollars.
0: That's huge. I mean, this is the thing about accounting, In the generally accepted accounting principles gap, you can get a pretty, I don't even know how to describe it, but just a not real scenario with net income of $392 million. And this, I haven't looked at their statements, but this must be a cap expenditure discrepancy of 500 million because it is a fairly cap intensive businesses.
1: Yeah, it was really, I mean, I have to dig a bit more, but it wasn't, in the, like I said, in the other income. So that's always quoted. And then you have to look in the footnotes and try to find like how they classify that. So that's how I found it. But, you know, at first glance, it would have looked like a pretty good quarter for them. But then when you Dig into it, and you look at the free of ca- uh, the cash flow statements. It's not as rosy. And now another company that this one's a bit more of a retail play. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on it, so I'll go through it, and I just wanted to hear what you think. So, are you saying that because of Kuschtar? No, no, just because of personal experience, and I'll I'll give okay. you it's. I know we didn't talk about this beforehand, but don't worry, it's not. I won't put you too much on this I'm spot. ready
0: for <laughs> it. I'm sharp today, Simon. Don't okay, worry.
1: Perfect. So this one is Fire & Flower. They reported their Q2 earnings. This is a retail play on cannabis with the smaller wholesale and digital platform segment. It's a really small company at 300 million market cap, revenue increased 51% to 43 million. Keep in mind last year in Q2 there were still ongoing tons of retail lockdowns. They posted a net income of 19 million versus a loss of 29 million last year. They are free cash flow negative 14 million this year versus 2.5 million last year, and they also opened 7 new stores in Canada to bring its total to 91 stores. And what I wanted to ask you is I've noticed in Ottawa, actually pretty close to my place, there's a spot within 100 meters on one of the main street near here where there's three cannabis stores within three, three, but there's two that are actually side by side. Oh, yeah, totally. Like what is going on with the licenses? I don't understand. Like, how does that make any sense? Are you seeing the same thing in Toronto? Dude, it is
0: out of control. Okay. So Queen Street in Toronto, or all the streets in Toronto, but Queen Street in particular, used to be home to lots of boutique small businesses. Now, when they were all locked down during COVID, a lot of them closed their doors forever, unfortunately, which is obviously really sad to see. All of them, Simon, I kid you not. Like all of them turn to cannabis retail stores like it's outrageous. How are they all gonna make money there's literally five per like block section on just one side of the street like there's there every single store is another cannabis store. like how do you pick it's just so much competition, so it's obviously you know something's gotta give, but this is happening across the board and the exact same thing happened in Vancouver too. So,
1: yeah, no, we'll I I wanted to talk about that because I know some people want to invest in the cannabis market and if I were to invest, I would definitely stay away from the retail play. There's potential other plays that make more sense, but just keep that in mind like when you have Like retail stores, there's not much that differentiates in terms of products. I know I think they just, in Ontario, they use the government system to order. But I think they'll have slightly different products. But to have stores like actually side by side, it just blows my mind. I I don't get it. Like how, I'm like you, how will they, like some of them will be forced to shut down. There's like, that's obvious. Something's got to give. There's
0: just an absolute flood of these retail stores. So yeah, you, you bring up, I mean, some of these publicly listed retail plays are difficult investing wise right now. And I mean, something's got to give. I mean, they can't have this many on every street corner in major cities and, and not even major cities. You're seeing this happen in small centers too. So something's got to give. The only thing I would give the edge to Fire and Flower is Kushtar, like ATD, does own a portion of it and is working with Fire and Flower to get distribution inside of their convenience stores. That would be huge for Fire and Flower, like obviously having that distribution, not only just here in Canada, but you know globally, eventually, that does give it an upper hand. And we saw like Canopy, for instance, as well, and these producers to get distribution, they own some of the retail players as well. Like Canopy owns Tokyo Smoke, which is a common, fairly popular retail play as well. And now they're just kind of lost in the mix because there's so many retail stores, like right beside it, as you mentioned it. So it seemed to be a reasonable part of the playbook to also have that retail presence as a producer to get yourself distribution right out of the gate. And now that, I mean, that just probably is not a very good use of capital now.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Anyways, enough about cannabis. So let's go on now to some big news into it. We'll acquire MailChimp. Have you heard about that one?
0: I have. Yes. Only because I know both businesses quite well.
1: Okay, perfect. So I'll kind of give the lowdown. I'm sure you'll want to add a little something. So the transaction is expected to be accretive to Intuit's earnings per share for full year fiscal 2022. Intuit will pay approximately $12 billion to acquire Melchip. Actually, Intuit will assume employee transaction bonuses. The deal will be paid in approximately equal parts of cash and stocks, obviously from uh, Intuit's common stock, with the shares of Intuit common stock being valued at $562, which is a fixed price for the transaction. Intuit expects cash consideration to be financed through cash on an new debt of approximately 4.5 to 5 billion dollars. The transaction is not expected to have an impact on Intuit's existing dividend and share repurchases. The transaction should be completed by January 2022, which is when Intuit's Q2 of 2022 ends. So they're not. They have a little bit of a weird financial year. For context, Mailchimp has about 800 million in revenue. It's. Sounds like Intuit wants to use the marketing options that MailChimp offers, so it will allow businesses to not only do accounting with Intuit, but also marketing to its clients. And MailChimp has business around the world, which might help Intuit get into markets that they don't have a big presence in. And Intuit has done tons of acquisitions in the past, so they do have a really, I would think, a pretty good track record with those. So that's kind of my lowdown. Brayden, you want to add anything?
0: Yeah, so for context, Mailchimp is in ESP, an email service provider primarily. So, if you are running a small business or a large business, how do you communicate with your customers? Now, the number 1 channel even today is email. It is a great channel because it converts really well and everyone has email. So, email marketing and ESPs Are great businesses even today. You you can say email's dying, sure. Email today is still as important as it's ever been when it comes to marketing especially. So what does Intuit do? They operate software as a service for operations like accounting, tax, payroll. I am a QuickBooks subscriber myself for Stratosphere Investing. Go to stratosphereinvesting.com. Easy plug, Simon. Thank you very much. So if I look at QuickBooks, it is this solution for me to manage all of my accounting and payroll in one place. And those two things complement each other well. I don't get the MailChimp acquisition. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. They're both great businesses. I don't know how they're better together. I really don't. MailChimp obviously is in the business of marketing and Intuit's in the business of operations like business operations with tax payroll accounting now if intuit does want to be that one stop solution for managing your business you know one one subscription you can get your you know your CRM your your email marketing your payroll your accounting your tax that sounds great and all but there are things like hubspot and dude a million of these saas businesses like twilio whatever that are already specializing so much in marketing, whether it's SMS marketing, email marketing, your CRM, you know the sales forces of the world, these things exist. I don't know why Intuit wants to get in this lane. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And $12 billion is not a cheap price. I don't love this deal, Simon. I really no. don't know how else to say it. I don't know how they integrate. And if Intuit does want to be that like, quote unquote, super app for businesses, Rolling out their tech, they're going to have to catch up. Mailchimp is an ESP. It's not a HubSpot, where HubSpot has CRM, ESP, and like you can even do paid cost per click type marketing inside of that as well. So, Mailchimp is not that platform that really moves the needle for them on the marketing side. I don't really know what else to say. I don't love this deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, I'll be honest, I kind of just read through what management was saying about the acquisition. I don't know both businesses well enough. It did sound a little strange the first time I saw it. But then as I was reading what management was saying about the acquisition, I'm like, okay, it may make a little bit of sense. I mean, they'll have to execute. That's kind of what it comes down to. But I'm with you. There is a lot of competition in that, that area. So it might be a bit hard for them. To really head towards a kind of complete solution. But I guess we'll see wait and see. I guess they'll have to prove us wrong.
0: Right. Like if it's a part of a string of acquisitions that can bolster, you know, a somewhat competitive marketing CRM platform on top of like the place you manage your tax accounting and payroll, then sure. I mean, the vision could make sense. But again, it seems a little far fetched from my perspective right now. Now, Intuit doing acquisitions makes total sense, right? Yeah. They have this platform and they can bolster on these other value-added services onto the platform. That makes complete sense. So if they're doing lots of acquisitions and bolstering, you know, their operations segment, that makes sense. But marketing, uh, I'm going to have to see this play out.
1: Who knows? Maybe you'll start using them for a stratosphere mail chip within Intuit. <laughs>
0: Maybe. Hey, you know what? Maybe. MailChimp, I mean, they obviously have so many customers, so many creators, small businesses, large businesses use MailChimp to deliver their email sequencing and marketing and big broadcasts for sales and stuff. MailChimp is huge. I mean, so many people use it. So from that perspective, maybe they have a shot, but you know, right now it seems like a bit of a stretch one thing i will say is these companies mailchimp or whatever it may be is they have this insanely profitable operating leverage type business where it's basically free to get started with mailchimp if you're a small if you're small potatoes you can sign on there you can start using their platform it's completely free now as soon as you pass like a threshold of contacts in your email list the price and like how much it costs to send out emails scales so much like all of a sudden you're paying like thousands of dollars on these marketing platforms and you before you're paying zero but they figure okay now that you're big you have all these contacts you you can afford it cuz you're a big business now and that it's sticky enough that you're not going to switch to a competitor and the competitors are expensive too so they have that like low friction user adoption model and then you start charging them Obscene amounts of money, which is very frustrating for small businesses. But this is the model. It works. We'll see if it plays out. I'm a so far with this deal. I I don't get it.
1: Yeah. For me, it's just going to be a wait and see, but I'm not planning to buy into it anytime soon. So I'll watch on the sidelines and let's see if management can execute on this.
0: Intuit ranks super high on my quant model. It always has. Intuit is, you know, one of those dividend appreciation companies. They're a tech company. They pay a small dividend, but the dividend grows a lot. So they're more mature on the software side, but they're still growing. So I mean, it ranks super high on my quant model. So if you're looking like for dividend plays inside of tech, which is kind of like an oxymoron these days, you know, Intuit and Microsoft are kind of the two players in town that'll deliver on that. Maybe, I guess, Apple as well, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd go with Microsoft before Intuit personally, but that's just me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, they both rank extremely high in my quant model. So, I mean, they're doing something right. That does it for today, guys. It is the election days. Hopefully, you all voted. We'll know the results soon. Take care and we'll see you in a few days. If you're new to the show, if you're just stumbling across this podcast somehow, we put out shows on Mondays and Thursday mornings. So that is the schedule right now until something changes. It's Monday and Thursday releases. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, we'll be back with the normal... So how this works is we do like a normal show on Mondays and then an earnings and news release updates on Thursdays. If you're finding value from it, share it with a friend. You'd be shocked at how much it helps us grow. And then helps us deliver with better content. It is that nice feedback loop. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. See you in a few days.
1: The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.